What's up, everybody? This is Marty Friedman, and you're listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now in this episode, Nick and myself chat with musician Marty Friedman about obtaining originality on the guitar, teaching techniques, childhood hell-raising, creativity, and more. As always, thank you out there for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. (laughs) Take us back in time to when you were a youngster. Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? (laughs) <laughs> I was closer to a troublemaker, definitely not a book reader. Uh, troublemaker, yeah, I got into a lot of trouble when I was a little kid. Like, what kind of trouble are we talking about? Are you, like, knocking mailboxes off the post with a baseball bat, or what? <laughs> uh, we used to, like, kick down street lights. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Is that a felony? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a felon. That's what we're talking about here. Um did not actually kick them down, but at some point we realized, myself and my friends realized that if you kick a street light hard enough, the light will go off. So it wouldn't knock the whole thing down, but the light would go out. So that was like the test of how manly you are. If you're strong enough to kick it hard enough to make the light go off, that's what we would do. So we would just walk around town trying to kick these lights until we could kick them out. And uh, <laughs> you put, didn't kick that one out. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. And, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, fun stuff, very constructive behavior. And where where was that? Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C., but uh, this happened mostly when I, I moved to Germany as a kid when I was in, like, uh, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. And I got in a lot of trouble at that time. And, yeah, it was, like, early teens. And I was basically pretty much trouble until I got to about 17. And then I got... Then I got my act together and became a really boring individual. But up until then, I was just a big troublemaker. What was the uh, what was the catalyst for the move to Germany? Uh, my dad um, was in the NSA, and uh, we got transferred a few times. We moved to Germany, and then we moved to Hawaii, and all that. And so a lot of times, it's kind of almost like the military. So move around a lot. Now, were either your parents musicians or musically inclined at all? No, it's it's funny. No one in my family was even close to being musically inclined. And they all liked music, but very normal. It wasn't like anyone was like super passionate about music or anything. They just liked music like anyone else did. You know, it wasn't like they had a record collection that they took care of or anything like that no marty when you think back to you know formative films and tv shows that you grew up on what comes to mind uh when i was a kid i used to love tv i used to like uh at school to watch tv i like the really old shows the one that were even before i was born like uh the honeymooners and all in the family and what else was a big one um when I was a kid, there was like a lot of black TV shows that were hilarious, like um, Sanford and Son mm. and Good Times and all yeah. that stuff. And there was just seemed like black was like really in on TV. And it was always really funny stuff, really good television programming. I remember just like cutting school and watching the end game shows and <laughs> sit in front of the TV all day. Yeah, that was that was a big thing. So at what point did you sort of become aware of music as like a passion? I was more into sports as a kid. I was very passionate about sports, but didn't have any 
I didn't have the body to do it in the first place. I was the scrawniest kid, littlest kid in every class. I loved to play sports, but I didn't suck, though. If you looked at me, you'd think, this guy sucks. <laughs> but um, I wasn't as bad as I looked. I loved playing it. I loved watching it and all that. But there was never going to be any chance to be in sports. So I was kind of aimless in what I was going to do as a teen until I saw Kiss. And that kind of like bridged it together. It's like I liked music, but I liked athletic sports and like jumping around and running and action and stuff. And up until then, most music was really kind of like like the Eagles or stuff, people are just standing around there with blue jeans and stuff. And and I just didn't put the two connect, connect them together that music could also be really aggressive and athletic and even competitive. And so when I saw Kiss, it just kind of like bundled it all together. I'm like, well, I can't do sports, but I pretty much probably can do what those guys are doing. Mm-hmm. And that kind of turned it around. So what records are spinning around the house? You know, what what were you into before Kiss musically? Before Kiss, um, I just bought records. You could buy records like in a pack of <clears throat> 10 for like 55 cents or something. You just get these random records. So I had stacks of these records. And I didn't know at the time, but they were probably just like overstock, just things that didn't get sold. But I still listen to them all the time and and uh, i don't know what i really like i think i liked uh johnny cash and i liked elvis and uh, yeah i didn't really care too much what it was i just listened to everything and then when i started listening to kiss then i became very much aware of what i liked and at the time i liked kiss i liked the ramones i liked black sabbath i liked cheap trick and and um hard edged with this distortion guitar um but i didn't really care for like the hippie side you know the aerosmith and led zeppelin side i was more in the kiss black sabbath side that 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 was what i was into in the early days now was it always guitar for you was did you ever try a drum set or anything was the guitar your first love guitar was the first thing it looked seemed like the easiest easiest thing to do and yeah drums i I would never be able to you know first thing you got to do is set the damn thing up you know what i mean (laughs) with all those screws and (laughs) and uh wrenches and all that shit you gotta be a mechanic no you (laughs) yeah you gotta be a mechanic to play the drum and that's even before you start hitting the damn thing (laughs) now the guitars seemed like pretty natural and i played bass actually in a band when i first started and that was uh fun but uh guitar was more uh, more natural for me so what was the, do you remember the first song that you taught yourself to play on it? Uh, there was a song by Rush, actually, on one of their early albums called Bacchus Plateau. And my friend showed it to me. There's only like three chords in it. I didn't know at the time that Rush was this big progressive band. I just thought it was like a rock band with a very high singing singer. <laughs> and um, yeah, I didn't didn't know this was hard, this is di- easy or whatever. But my friend showed it to me. I'm like, hey, this song's pretty easy. And then there's a couple other songs that you can kind of get through by Rush. I wasn't even a big Rush fan. I was just like, well, if I can play it, I'll try it. And so it was a Rush song. <laughs> Starting out with Alex Lyson. Right. <laughs> well, nothing nothing like his solos or anything. It was just like some chords. <laughs> this is something I like to ask everyone, Marty, just because you never know. Uh, what scared you as a kid? Oh, well, these are better questions than the usual guitar stuff so i appreciate that (laughs) i do um scared me as a kid you know i wasn't really scared of much as a kid actually i think um i remember being scared when i was playing basketball Uh, i was shortest guy in the class but i loved playing basketball and i joined the basketball team of my junior high school basketball team which God knows why they let me on the team, but I remember having to do a jump ball with somebody on the other team who's like a good solid foot and a half taller than me. And I'm like, I was so embarrassed that I was scared at that that point. Um, I remember being scared of like playing with these guys. They looked like, you know, giants compared to me. I was I was scared, but, you know, I went in there and sucked really bad, but the, I went there and did it. and. That's the only time I remember being scared as a kid. Land of the Giants. 
<laughs> was was basketball your your sport of choice, or did you play a lot of different stuff? I played everything, but the basketball for some reason that was the only one that they actually let me on the school team. <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's a human resources issue. Definitely wasn't a diversity issue back then. Um, we got to have some short guy on the team. I don't I don't know what it was, but they let me on the team and. I just didn't have any any talent or the physique for it, but I was the guy, you know, who knew everybody's stats. You know, I knew everybody's yeah. stats. This guy's batting like two seventy. You know, this guy's uh, you know, went from second base to third base and averages and shit like that. I, I was good with that, but actually playing it, I just didn't have the physique for it. You like the team that, bookkeeper. The bookkeeper, <laughs> like the bad news bears. <laughs> Do you still keep up with sports? Are you still a big sports fan? Um, unfortunately, no, only because I live in Japan and um, it takes a real commitment to follow the teams. I was, I was a big Redskins fan and Orioles fan, and I just haven't followed up on it. But I think when I go back and I'm on tour and sometimes you see sports on TV, then I'll sit down and enjoy it, but mm-hmm. I don't follow it like I used to. Marty, you're, you're a teacher as well. You know, you, you're mostly self-taught. So how do you encourage a student, you know, to also become their own individual player as opposed to just following a teacher? I just finished doing the most exhaustive video in my entire career for this company called True Fire. And it's going to be a video series addressing exactly what you say. Mm. And and your question is more important than what most people want to learn from other guitarists most people want to learn techniques and they want to learn the latest trendy techniques and impressive techniques and um, how to actually play the instrument which is natural to want to learn that stuff but anyone can learn that from anywhere really you do not need a teacher for that so what what I'm teaching in this video series is how to learn how to be an artist and make creative decisions on the fly intentionally and subliminally and that's the only way to have an identity as an artist anyone can learn any techniques practice them perfect them and perform anything that's already been done in music but then just say you have all the abilities you ever wanted now then what then what are you going to do so really have to decide when you're going to be yourself who are you as an artist what is your absolute musical taste what do you want people to hear when they hear your name you know when you hear john smith you think of this sound now you got to create that sound that people think of when you hear john smith's name come up and that process is very very much overlooked because it's not as uh enticing as here's like this fancy technique if you practice it five hours a day for a week you'll get good at it that's like what most people get attracted to but that's why the majority of people don't really have musical identities because they fall into that kind of learning trap so you know i address all of those things in the video and the main thing is you just have to listen to yourself and be very critical of every single decision that you make. Should I play this note longer, shorter? Which note should I play? Why should I play it? So those are the things that I try to make people think about. Did you have to sort of get there yourself over time? Because like we just talked to Devin Townsend and he compared guitar playing in the 80s to a competitive sport. You know, like everybody wanted to be fast. Did you fall into that trap or were you always trying to play your own style? I think if you are lucky enough to develop your own style at a very early age, as I was, you kind of instinctively try to grow your own style and be true to what you enjoy playing as a musician. And I think what Devin said is is totally true. And for a while, it kind of like started to fade away. But now that situation has gone into steroid mode with all of the Instagram guitarists it's really become exactly what Devin's talking about, like a almost like a sport, um, because you're trying to create impressive content for a 30-second, 60-second okay. chunk of time, 
to get attention to that very short snippet of what you're playing. So to that end, people are developing these insane skills that are actually pretty cool in a lot of cases because they're they're doing it to you know get your attention and, and get your attention in a short period of time is not easy so on that level it's very very cool but on another level it's kind of not lame but i'm going to steal something my good friend steve lukather said because i love it he said that if you have like this insane technique this just jaw-dropping amazing technique just something that no one else can play it's like having a 20-inch cock. <laughs> it's, it's great to show someone, but there's not a whole lot of places to put it. <laughs> That's got to be one of the best quotes we've ever had. On <laughs> I love it so much. And I love it so much that I got to tell you exactly where it came from, from Lukather. I'd love to claim it as my own, but it's so good that I can't do it. it it's so true because in real-life situations... All of those things you see in those super impressive Instagram 30-second clips, you will never, ever, ever be able to use any of that in right. a professional situation playing for large numbers of people. But in those situations, you still have to play impressive things, but they have to be impressive within the context of a big league situation. And that's a completely different set of skills than YouTube or Instagram or whatever, which they're really both valid, actually, because they both exist and they both entertain people. So I'm not coming down on that. It's just like a 20 inch cock is valid. I mean, I wish I had one, you know, <laughs> even if I can't, I can't use it everywhere. It's nice to have. It's a nice showpiece. Um, <laughs> it's a nice showpiece. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't know what it'd be like to be a guitar player growing up nowadays. I think um, it'd be wonderful because it's easy to get information that you can soon use to, you know, develop your own style and soon use to develop your own abilities. But on the other hand, it might be kind of overwhelming to see, turn on your phone and two minutes in, you're seeing someone you've never heard of who can play better than you will ever play in your entire life. So there's that discouraging thing that you have to constantly get over. But on the upside, you can be that guy in your own way easier than you could ever in the history of playing. So it all evens out, but it's a very interesting time to play music. Marty, the artistic identity you're talking about, do you think that's something that you developed consciously early on or did it just kind of happen in the background because you were self-taught? I think it's a little bit of both. I think I was self-taught, so... I didn't wind up learning a lot of things that teachers try to teach you. Something that a lot of guitar students out there might not know is guitar teachers are people too. And a lot of times the stuff they're showing you, they're only showing it to you because that's the only thing they really know. Now that might not be what you want to learn, but they'll show it to you in a way that they make it sound like that's the most important thing that you need to learn. You need to learn these things to get to the next level. But in often cases, they're just showing that to you because that's the only thing they're really confident about showing you. Teachers do not know everything. They're just like you. They want to be rock stars. They want to they get up there. And they're doing that. Teaching is a great way to continue to learn yourself. It's a great way to make a little money. It's a great... I recommend it to everybody. But the student has to remember that that teacher is not the be-all end-all and there are a lot of other places to get information whether it be right or wrong or easy or hard or whatever so the teacher he's just showing you whatever he's got to show you to get through the half hour or hour while letting you think that he knows everything and i kind of figured that out i had a teacher for a while and he was a good teacher but he was teaching me all this stuff that I didn't want to learn. And I want to learn punk rock and heavy rock and heavy metal. And he was teaching me kind of theoretical things and kind of hippie things. And I'm like, okay, this guy's better than I am. But why can't he show me this Ramones song? <laughs> so I'm like, kind of like 
thinking these Ramones guys aren't exactly geniuses. I can probably figure this out on my own. <laughs> and I started to put two and two together that, hey, teachers can teach some things very well, but each teacher is going to have a different specialty. And so why don't I try to use my own ear as much as I can and learn from players? And, you know, I'd go to bars and I'd say to the guy in the band, Play dude, show me that solo in the third song. That was really cool. So I kind of like tailored what I was learning to the people I would learn it from. So like if I met someone and I a player, I would look at what he's playing. And most of it, if it didn't appeal to me, I'd just say, wow, that's very nice. But if even one phrase appealed to me, I'm like, dude, show me that. How'd you do that? Mm. And I still do that now. I'm like, I'm that asshole who asks you to show him something. <laughs> you know, I still do it. You know, I'm fortunate I get to play with all these wonderful players. And I'm the guy after the event's over. I'm like, you know that thing you played in the first intro of the song? Um, can you show me that? You know, that I'd never seen that done before. And most times they're happy to show it to you. And that way you don't get a lot of information that you don't care about and you find the things you're interested in and next thing you know you're good at the things that represent you and you're kind of suck at the things that you don't really care to be represented by while we're on the subject of music teachers is there a music teacher that comes to your mind that gave you a maybe a specific piece of aha advice early on no i only really had that one teacher but he gave me some pretty funky advice that I still remember. You guys are asking these weird questions that are jarring up all these unusual answers, which is cool. Uh, my teacher once said, um, I came to my lesson wearing a ring. What the fuck are you wearing a ring for? <laughs> it's like, that's a, that, looks like you, that looks like you've just been raiding your mother's jewelry box. <laughs> I, I never forgot that. And because of that, I never wore rings when I played. You know why? Because he was right. I took it out of my mom's jewelry box. <laughs> I saw. He called you out. I, on I it. saw all these like rock musicians with rings and shit, and I'm like, wow, I'm gonna show up to my lesson with a ring. <laughs> and so he kind of never forgot that. Never wore rings after that. And then another thing he said, which thankfully I didn't take this advice. He says, every time you complete an exercise properly reward yourself with a bong hit amen and, and uh, i'm like yeah that's that's a great idea and i did it for a while i'm like get a lot done but like you don't remember anything that you've got done so that's why justin records these interviews every time he has a successful interview <laughs> yeah i literally have the bong over here to the side after this is over i'll be like good interview with marty and i'm gonna oh, take it man I, I recommend it <laughs> See, if, I, if only I'd recorded those guitar lessons, I would have remembered what I had learned that I rewarded myself for. But, uh, yeah, I did that for a while. and um, But that's the only two aha moments I ever got from a teacher. At what age would you say that you began to take music seriously to you know, pursue it as a career? Early, early, like 14 or 15. I got into a band right away. We played originals almost all originals and people showed up to watch us play and it was just like so addicting i knew it was like the only one thing that i could probably get good at even though i wasn't any good at the beginning you know you look at other things that people are good at people are good uh you know they're good journalists or they're good writers or they're good students or they can be a doctor or truck driver mechanic you have to have talent for any of those things and i didn't see that happening but i could see that i could make it through a song and i didn't look like a dork when i did it as least i didn't think so i thought that i held my own and i held my own within the band and i kind of had a natural sense about music so i thought well i'm just going to keep doing this no idea if i'll ever make a cent from it but at least it's something that I can do that. I can do this. I knew that I could do it. So uh, I knew like maybe around 14 or 15 that that's what I was going to do. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Cacophony and, and getting into that band and you sort of shared guitar duties with Jason Becker at that point? How, how was that for you? Was that something that sort of happened organically or was that just more of getting into a, a band to be in a band? Well, at that time, I was really going to do my own solo record. 
I was asked uh, by Shrapnel Records to do a solo album, and that was the biggest thrill for me, and I was going to really try to make a big impression with this record. I worked, never worked that hard in my life on anything, because I knew this was, if I was going to ever have a shot, this was going to be it. So I just kind of locked myself up and wrote and wrote and wrote and worked up a millions of things that I could never do before and just practiced and all that. And then right before I was going to record it, I met Jason and I just fell in love with him. And not only as a person, but when we jammed, you know, he didn't really have a whole lot of super ideas yet. He didn't have a lot of great ideas. But one thing that really stood out was anything that I did, no matter how exotic or weird or orthodox it was, he could mimic it immediately and play it just as well as I did. I've never seen anything like that because I played very strange and very unusual lines and strange melodies. And so I never saw anything like that. I'm like, dude, what's up? And I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to perform my music live, there's no one else who can play these harmonies with me but you. So why don't we, I'll carve out little spaces of this record for you to contribute, you to play parts on this record. Instead of doing a solo album, let's make this a band and actually play this stuff live. Because had I done a solo record, I never would have been found anybody to make a band out of it. It just would have been released and that would be the end of that. But I never thought that far ahead at that time. I just thought, I'm making a record, shit. That's all I thought about. And then when I saw Jason, I'm like, you know, we could actually do this in front of people. And uh, so I kind of kind of pained me to like throw away the solo album. But I thought the big picture, we're going to play this in front of people. So what cooler guy to be doing it with than this guy who is just such a sweet guy, cool dude and so much potential. He was just starting to reach his potential. He was growing so much faster than I was. And by the time our second record started happening, he was like a whole new player with millions and millions of great ideas. So it was a great partnership. Uh, Marty, you just mentioned that uh, Jason would mimic your play. Uh, how do you learn best yourself? You know, do you work better by listening or having someone sit down and show you what have you? I developed a pretty decent ear over the years as a kid. So if I hear something, I can pretty much figure out what it's about. But over time, I've subliminally put my own filter on whatever it is that comes in. So what often happens is I'll hear something in the background, like a melody in an Indian restaurant or something, for example. And I'm like, wow, I've never heard that little combination of notes before. What was that? And then I'll like learn it. And then I'll try to put it in a sentence, so to speak. I'll try to like a put it in my own framework and now I have a whole new little kind of inroad, a new pattern, a new new thing, a new uh, vocabulary. Mm. So that's kind of how it grows. I hear something unique and I just put it in the in the filter and something happens with it. So what about your very first time on stage? You know, whether whatever you consider that to be, whether it was grade school, church, what have you, did your pants fall down or did it go off without a hitch? The very first time, the first gig was, I was in my very first band. We played at a, a backyard party next door <laughs> to my house. It was so incredibly lame because <laughs> they, the, the people having the party choose the set list. They Here's our requests and you learn it. And that's what happens in real life. In real life, if you're like a wedding band or you play family events or backyard parties, the people give you a list of songs. And so on this list of songs were um, Barbara Streisand, The Bee Gees, Saturday Night Fever, Chicago, a couple other songs in there, that kind of genre. And they had this ELP song, of all things. And we were just friggin' beginners. Thankfully, we had a fantastic singer who was like, when you have a good singer, the band can suck. Made it through all of these songs, Color My World by Chicago. So we're learning all these major seven chords. And we didn't even have a bass player, but nobody in the band noticed we didn't have a bass player. Wow. Two guitars, drums, and a vocal. And we made it through the set list. 
and no one had a problem. Um, we got paid 20 bucks a piece. And I'm like, okay, so this is how it works. You learn your shit, you rehearse, and you play it in front of people, and you get money at the end. Okay, I got it. So that was the process. And pretty much that process hasn't really changed. <laughs> um, and, you know, you learn a lot of stuff when you're 14, and you don't think you're going to be doing the same thing when you're a thousand years old, but it really doesn't vary too much from it. You know, even when you're doing your own music, you're kind of keeping your customers, so to speak, your audience in mind when you choose the set list. And then, right. then you get your band together and you go out on tour and play in front of people and then hopefully get paid. Thankfully, now I can recognize whether there's a bass player in the band or not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that begs an interesting question. So in your later work, you've got three volumes of the Tokyo Jukebox series. And those are those are covers. Do you choose those or is that are, are other people asking you to, to do those? That's an extremely complex process in Japan. When you do a cover song, not only do you have to, the record company has to okay it, but the actual songwriters have to okay it oh. before you can release it. Shit. So you can't just say, I'm going to cover this song and put it out. No. You need to get an okay from the songwriters, which is a very intense process. The first Tokyo Jukebox was done from a magazine that I had been... Uh, they did features. I had a feature in this magazine for like six years, and we did this campaign that was like, let the readers choose what songs they want me to cover. Oh, okay. And so they listed up all of these songs, and they ranked them. There was like 50 songs on this list. It was a very big, prestigious magazine. I guess it was like People Magazine, but in Japan, or Entertainment Weekly type of thing. Yeah. So I chose from that list... You know, I took the top songs off the list and then I kind of threw out the ones that I didn't want to do, chose from the list, and then went, the record company went through all the publishing contacts to make sure that we get the clearances. And then boom, we did it. And then the other two Tokyo jukeboxes was, I made a list, the record company made a list, and then we put that list together and see which ones would get the clearances first. And then that's how we chose songs pain in the ass i would love to just say i want to do these songs yeah and be done with it before we even start pre-production there's like a couple of months of uh pre-pre-production so to speak but at yeah. the end of the day it's all it's all good but it's a long process so uh marty this is a question from a former student of yours uh, he's a friend of mine he's got a band called cauldron born his name's howie bentley he wants to know why your eyes were so red in your first instructional video <laughs> I apparently like uh, was rewarding myself for getting all the exercises. For... That's not true. That's not can't be true because I stopped doing everything when I was seventeen. I just quit everything. Before then, I was I was totally raging all of the time. Never went to school straight a day. But at seventeen, I just quit everything and got really focused on music. So during that video, I don't know what it was. Um. I might have been jet lagged because uh, I didn't live where the video was shot. And plus I had like zero, zero stage, not stage presence, but video presence or video charisma. Mm. So, I might, you know how it is. You, people can't talk to a camera. I had no, absolutely none of that ability at all. So I was probably just trying to get through it. I don't know. I might have been tired, but I. People tell me all the time, dude, you look so stoned. <laughs> uh, I might have been bored. I might have been bored. It's not the first time I've heard that. To tell, tell your, your friend. Yeah, it's, it's it's embarrassing because who knows those videos, people are going to keep knowing about them <laughs> up until now. Hopefully my new video will make everyone forget about all of that stuff. Yeah, everything lives on YouTube. Damn it. So it seems like you started teaching pretty early on in your guitar journey. So when did you decide to do that? Yeah, I mean, I was smart when I was a kid. When I very first started, I'd been playing guitar like three months, could barely play anything. But I went to my guitar lessons and I learned what my guitar teacher taught me. Whatever that was, I would go and I'd teach the neighborhood kids the exact same thing that I just learned and charge them about half of what I had to pay my teacher to do. 
It's like if I was paying 10 bucks, genius, genius. I was no teacher. I didn't know anything but what the teacher told me. And I just learned that and then said, dude, I'm going to give you guitar lessons. Okay, yeah. So I asked for five bucks or whatever it was, taught him. So not only did I get the benefit of learning it myself, but I had the benefit of actually showing it to someone else. So I really learned it deeply what I was learning from the teacher, plus getting paid for it. So I strongly recommend that to anyone at any level. Literally, I just started. But if you just, it's like any information, someone gives it to you, you take that information, you give it to somebody else. It was just basic business one-on-one, but like I was never, I never liked teaching. I always loved teaching people who I thought, thought could take my information and do something with it. You know, when I was pretty much homeless and teaching strictly for money, 99% of the people just want to learn how to play like Van Halen or, you know, whatever the latest trend is. And I did that just because I wanted to eat. Doing that really doesn't do the student any good and it doesn't do me any good and I'm not really good at it. So I really quite dislike teaching, but I always loved being in a situation like, for example, with Jason Becker or even the guitarists in my band now, Naoki, who's in my band from Japan, or even in Jordan, when Jordan Ziff was in the band in America, you know, you got a good guy who's got a lot of great things and they pick up on things of mine that if I can help them understand that kind of teaching, I'm very, very enthusiastic about. Or if I do a master class or something, then you get people with really well-informed questions who can get something that I'm capable of giving, but I'm not the right guy to like, just show you something because you want to show off to your friends. And I really got burnt out on that when I was uh, in my teens. So as soon as I could afford to not teach anymore, I stopped completely. It was I just not cut out for that. You know, with your master class, like you said, usually you're getting more people that are more involved and professional guitar players, definitely more your thing. Uh, so say I'm in your master class, what, what would you want me to take away from it as a student? I would want you to use the opportunity to come up with the specific questions that you would have that can help you and ask me in in that masterclass or seminar clinic whatever because a lot of people they kind of freeze up they get shy that's the chance to really you know if i had a chance all my favorite rock stars they were on posters on my wall i would love to ask those guys this one specific question how did this happen or just specific questions for each person that's a chance and so i would want you to get those questions a- answered mm-hmm. even whether they're musical or not that's what i would want each person to do and sometimes people do it and then they walk away actually getting something from it a lot of people for whatever reason kind of freeze up and because they have a different it's kind of a scarier as you can see i'm definitely not type of scary dude you know i'm very very ill you know and but people hear the music and they get intimidated and there's really no reason to do that so i really wish people would just feel very free to just ask personal yeah questions you know i just did one at uh mi in japan two days ago and people were asking about how do i get over stage fright and that's a very good question to ask and people ask very technical questions about how to approach a particular passage in a song. So I like that. But when they come in and they say, dude, show me something cool, it's just a waste of everybody's time. So I I would want you to dig deep and see what you can get out of it. Have you ever dealt with stage fright yourself? Yeah, I have actually. Um, It happens very rarely, and those rare times are when you break focus of what it is you're doing. Since I've been playing live ever since in my middle teens, as soon as it comes time to play, I'm immediately like like a jet. Like I'm immediately focused exactly on where the goal is and I'm just completely locked in on whatever it is I'm gonna play. And when you're like that, there's no room to get nervous because you're you prepared for what you're doing and you know exactly you're gonna go out there and kill. But sometimes, sadly, you have an event and uh, even though you're prepared for whatever reason, 
and the busier of a person you are, the more this happens, you could be having a serious discussion, a meeting about some completely unrelated thing that's very stressful, like a program you're going to do the next day or the next week, or a different situation with recording or, or someone that you wanted to work with canceled or whatever, some kind of serious thing happens and you're in a meeting all the way up to stage time and those times you kind of break focus or if you're like in a in like an argument or something with someone important like a manager or someone on the staff you've got some kind of bad feeling that just happens at a time like between dressing room and the show those are the times that you get something that's like a stage fright and you don't play your best. And I really, really try to avoid those times. But sometimes when you're just really, really busy with a lot of, a lot of projects at the same time, it happens. And I hate it so much because stage fright is a killer. You just don't play your best mm. and you're just angry with yourself. So the more focused you are and intense focus, intense focus is, is a key word right there seems like it's a uh, mostly non-musical factors affecting the music yeah 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 um because um the only other way you could get stage fright is if you're not musically prepared for what it is you're going to do a lot of people think they're prepared but they're not you know they'll learn whatever it is they're going to play at home and maybe at rehearsal and then they realize that when they get on stage it's a completely different atmosphere you got flashing lights, you got people, there's a lot of information coming into you. The sound is not what you're used to. You can't hear the drums or you can't hear the bass the way you're used to hearing it. You have to perform to people. People are looking at you, people are shouting. You're having problems with your gear. Um, there's all kinds of outside things that you weren't prepared for and you weren't musically prepared for doing it. That's why people get stage fright, because the live atmosphere is completely different from what you prepared. So, uh, Marty, I think you've lived in Japan now for 20 years or so, if I'm not mistaken. What was the uh, catalyst for the move to permanent move to Japan? It was uh, the music. Before I moved here, I was coming to Japan all the time for touring, promotion. And even when I was not touring a promotion, I would come to Japan to hang out so um all those times when you're in japan you don't hear american music like ever it's all japanese domestic music that's on the radio on tv in restaurants and background wherever you go it's japanese music i started to really relate to it i started to enjoy it get addicted to it i thought at some point this is the music i want to make the only way to make it is to live here and uh it was really just that simple you know, I'd been studying Japanese as a hobby for quite some time before then. So it was very helpful that I could speak the language mm. before I moved here. And it was literally just about the music. Are there any Japanese performers that you have not had a chance to work with that you'd love to work with? Yes. Um, and they, there's more and more every day. I've worked with a lot of my super favorite ones of all time. Um, and I've done work together with like for example maximum the hormone you probably know a very cool band right um we've worked together but not playing music together we've done like interviews and radio programs together and things like that but never made music together and there's a lot of artists like that you know we've done a tv show talk show whatever but never played together and there's a lot of more recent artists like Yoasobi and ado and things like that Genshi and all kinds of very cool new music things happening that I haven't worked with yet that I would love to. Um, it eventually always happens, you know, somehow I'm very fortunate in that way. But there's tons that have yet to really make music with. So is there a, an aspect of Japanese culture that you had trouble adjusting to after you moved there? Um, the first one was um, the difference between coming to Japan on tour and living in Japan. When you're on tour, staff's all there. There's a timetable. Everything is followed to the letter. All the meals, all the hotels, all the helpers, all everything is just as you imagine. The Japanese staff is really on it. You come to live, there's no one there. <laughs> no one's doing anything. 
Like, oh, yourself, oh, my God, I've got to separate the trash. With your own dinner. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God, I've got to uh, get your own dinner. You've got to uh, make an, a, a lease for an apartment. You've got to have a bank account. You've got to sign up for all kinds of different uh, visa-type things. And it's really the real world hits you hard. Uh, those just normal life things are difficult anywhere, but in Japan, it's even more difficult. So uh, I would say the normal life things are very hard to adjust to at the beginning, but eventually it's second nature. Do you have dual citizenship? Uh, no, I'm a completely American citizen, but a Japanese resident, so I get the best of both. Is there an experience that you've ever had that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Good question. Um, sometimes I get, I do certain events. I do tons of events that it's like, what the hell? This is the coolest thing ever, but what the hell am I doing here? Like, for example, um, I got involved with like pro wrestling stuff. Like, I don't know if you follow any kind of pro wrestling, like uh, New Japan, the champion is yeah. uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi. He asked me to play at the Tokyo Dome to play him in to like this championship match. Damn. One time a few years ago. One of his things is when he comes into the ring, he like air guitars. That's one of his favorite famous things. So he thought, why not have Marty come in and play this song and we could come into the ring together. So here I am with this champion wrestler and I'm playing guitar. Tokyo Dome is going completely fucking ape shit. And I'm like, I'm thinking back to that gig I just told you about at the neighbor's house playing Barbra <laughs> Streisand song. And I'm like, the fuck has happened? This is the coolest thing ever. And I'm like, talk about sports. Talk about like fucking the champion. And uh, just recently, a couple months ago, did this thing with him again, where it was a big concert. I forgot it was the Tokyo Dome or Super Arena or where it was, but like all the famous wrestlers in Japanese history came out to their entrance songs and bands, different bands, different artists played the entrance songs. And I played Tanahashi's songs coming in and it was me and him in the ring together. And I told my mom I was doing this and she said, don't let him throw you out of the ring. <laughs> it was <just> so insane. <laughs> And I'm like, it's just the coolest thing ever. So I don't know if it's supernatural, but it just feels like an out-of-body experience sometime in Japan. Sure. And, that and doing like Japanese traditional music. I played with Japanese taiko drummer um, three days ago, actually. And Oh, um, wow. Yeah, that it's just like, it's such a great thing that they allow me to be a part of and and right now there's this campaign in, in the Tokyo airport where they're playing my most recent music video as it's a Japanese Japan heritage theme song is being played in the Tokyo Haneda airport. So when you clear customs, there's a video of me playing guitar and I'm like, this is supernatural right here. You know, it's really, it's, it's more thankful. It's more grateful because I can't believe you know, they're so cool to allow me to do this stuff. But sometimes I feel like, you know, very supernaturally grateful about this stuff. Mm. Not no reason, no idea why there. It's been so nice, but happens often. So you mentioned Kiss uh, earlier in the conversation. Do you have any other formative concerts that come to mind? Really, Kiss mm. was, the, was a big one. Um, I used to go to gigs a lot as a kid. Sabbath, Van Halen, Mahogany Rush was a big favorite, Angel, Peter Frampton, all that stuff, all of that original rock stuff. ACDC, I was so lucky to see them on Let There Be Rock. And oh, wow. Those, those were the big formative years of concert going. But Kiss was the, the big, and the Ramones, really. Kiss, Ramones, and Sabbath seeing all of them live was just like i wouldn't trade it just uh that did it okay marty well i been... appreciate you guys. really really fun questions it's been a pleasure man I got my brain out of out of, <laughs> out, of, out, of, out of out of space i really liked it <laughs> well just to uh, put a bow on everything marty just tell everybody where they can find you and what you got coming up okay well i'm working on a new album right now 
should be out uh, in the spring of next year and um, it's coming along very nicely immediate thing that you can see is uh, Jackson guitars have a campaign um, for a new guitar that they've released that's got me and a couple other really sweet guys playing a song that was written by Misha from Periphery and um, just look up Jackson American Virtuoso and you'll see this video that I think is revolutionary I think Jackson has just raised the bar um, higher than I've ever seen it raised for any kind of guitar campaign and um, yeah so that's what's going on now and hopefully touring outside of Japan soon, early next year. And um, loved our tour in uh, April and March of this year. So uh, hope to play everywhere soon. Awesome, Marty. Thank you, man. I, we appreciate thank, it. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. What a blast. You guys thank have a great day. Good have, fun. have a great day, man. All right, you too. Take care. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Marty. As always, thanks for listening. And we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon Crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.